Good afternoon, and welcome to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill, and I'm with the Friends of the Library. The book today, the title of which is a real challenge to a speech teacher, The Sixth Extinction, is going to be reviewed by someone who is eminently qualified to do so, Todd Wichert is the executive director of Discover Life in America, the nonprofit organization coordinating the biodiversity inventory uh, in the Smokies. Before joining that organization, he worked as an educator for IAM's Nature Center for 16 years. He has a biology degree from the University of Tennessee, a master's in business from Lincoln Memorial, and a master's in education. From UT. He is an eighth generation Tennessean, having grown up in the small town of Red Boiling Springs, where his family has lived since the late 1700s. The book itself that he's going to review reminds me of a variation of a pogo comment We have met the enemy, and he is us. Uh, we've met the target, and it is us. Please welcome Mr. Richard. Thank you all so much for having me today. Uh, thank you to Emily and the library system, Ms. Gill, for uh, Friends of the Library, for having me out today. I'm glad to be here to talk to folks uh, about our project and about, um, about this book. I want to talk a little bit, of course, about the book to start with. I love the way the book is set up. I think uh, you could read each individual chapter and have a story and and not read any else of it and go away with some important information. Uh, There are 13 stories in the book. Elizabeth Kolber is the the author, and she's written a couple of other books about climate change specifically. And this one, she tackles a pretty tough subject in extinction, and she goes into our historical extinctions that we're still studying and still figuring out, five of them, and then talks about what's happening now, which she has determined is the sixth great extinction. Ms. Colbert is is an award-winning staff uh, writer for The New Yorker, and as I said, she's she's written some other books that I have not read, but uh, understand her pretty focused on climate change specifically. This book deals a lot with climate change, but obviously some other important factors that deal that we're dealing with these days. One of the problems, I think, or one of the issues that's hard for most folks to grasp with our current situation, with things disappearing, is the complexity of it. And I think she does a good job in dealing with those uh, Climate change is one issue, obviously, and there are things that are disappearing probably based specifically on the climate changing, even as we speak. But there are all kinds of other issues, and she delves into those. One, one of the things we deal a lot with in the Smokies are invasive species, and, that, and they're certainly causing all sorts of trouble uh, in the Smokies and other places. But invasive organisms, climate change, ocean changes, fragmenting of forest, all of these are changing the rate of, evolu- of, of evolution, and there are lots of organisms that are not able to adapt to these changes. So she delves into a lot of this with each chapter. The first chapter is, and again, one of the things I love about uh, the book is she goes and visits with the people who are doing the research. And I, I think this is important in, in the days now that we have where 
people just make up their own story and tell you that this is true even though they may or may, may not know anything about the subject matter. She, she actually visits these places where this action and this research is happening and talks with, interviews the scientists who are, who are doing the work. The first chapter deals with, in general, it deals with the, the problems we're having with amphibians disappearing in, in, across the globe. Most of it's related to two viruses, chytrid and rhino, what they call rhinovirus. The estimation is that amphibian populations are declining over 200 times the, the normal rate of extinction. We don't know exactly why all this is happening, but a lot of it has to do with the transfer of invasive organisms across continents. Uh, it has to do with warming of the climate with pollution, uh, again, a complex of factors in relating it back to the Smokies. We know that um, those two viruses have been already been detected there. We know that it's having an effect on the populations. Um, I'm going to read a, a couple of things she says, not only about, about what's happening to amphibians, but relating that back to what's happening to other organisms. The extinction rate rates, among many other groups, are approaching amphibian levels. It is estimated that one-third of all reef-building corals, a third of all freshwater mollusks, a third of sharks and rays, a quarter of all mammals, a fifth of all reptiles, and a sixth of all birds are headed toward oblivion. As Ms. Gill said, it's, uh, I, I thought about how I was going to talk about this without you know, having everyone in the fetal position by the time we were finished. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's a difficult subject, but it's really, really one we have to hit head on. Most of, if not all, the problems are, are human-related, and we have to solve the problem. We have to figure out how to deal with it. And I think she does a good job of talking about that, although there are not really any real solutions that are put forward in the book. It is a raising of awareness of the things that we do as a species to other species and to our habitat. We'll move on to chapter number two, which talks a lot about uh, the great auk, uh, which is a, a large bird in the same line as the dodo, except that this bird was not confined to one island. Uh, it was a wide-ranging bird, and this is one of those uh, cases where, again, we as a species decided that it was delicious and we would eat all of them, basically. And uh, one of the things about situations historically that have happened with species that are on the brink of extinction that is always, it's really one of the reasons I'm in conservation, is those folks who feel the need at the near termination of a group of animals to go out and collect the last few for, for uh, his history's sake, I suppose. But as we know, and, and I'm going to give you some other examples, the last few great auks were collected for museums they uh, went to the island where they knew they existed and took the last few, and now we have them stuffed so we can always see them, but uh, instead of an effort being made to try to save that species. The same things happened with some of our North American species, uh, like the ivory-billed woodpecker. If you go to the Smithsonian, they have drawers and drawers and drawers and drawers of, of specimens of the ivory-billed. The habitat destruction and, and the loss of habitat is really what had driven that species to the brink, but we finished it off with our over-collection of what some hoped would be the last specimens. 
the greatest example probably of, of at least in the bird world, is, is the passenger pigeon. I was looking at some of the photos they have of, or drawings they have of, of this, and, and, you know, these birds were so common that they would blacken the skies. And this is a, this is a local species. The pigeon forge is named for the passenger pigeon. So we had lots of them. And it's one of those cases where we as a, a species think that something is an unlimited resource, and we don't recognize that by just doing whatever we want to do with it, we can really destroy it. And the rail system really uh, helped with the demise of the passenger pigeon because they just, it was a very social bird. They would just go out in fields and kill hundreds and thousands. They would load them onto trains and ship them to other places to feed folks, and we, ate, we basically ate all of them. Um, one of the things we have to look at is, is our impact and what we can do differently. We have to be the people who come up with the solutions. We are causing the problems, so we have to figure out what the, what the solutions are and how we can do things better. I think there are some really simple answers to some of these issues. One of the things that uh, she mentions in her book is human activity and how we've transformed things. Uh, we've transformed half the land surface of the planet. We've dammed or diverted almost all of the world's major rivers. We've removed one-third of the primary production of the, of the oceans by overfishing. And we use most of the, the, the freshwater in the world, at least the runoff of the freshwater. So we overconsume everything, and we have to try to change our behavior. Um, I was raised by a family of very conservative Republicans. So as you might imagine, I'm the black sheep of my family. Um, but my brother asked me one time, don't you think that all these scientists that are getting rich off of, all, off of this climate change stuff and all this extinction stuff, uh, don't you think there's something wrong with that? And I said, I don't really know any million or billionaire scientists out there. Do you? And so it's interesting how the media and, and folks who have a I guess a bone to pick in some of this uh, will make up stories like that. But I like the fact that she goes and talks to the people who are on the ground uh, doing the work and gets, gets the facts from them. I didn't know a whole lot before reading this book about ocean acidification. I, I knew that it was happening. We have that happening in the Smokies with our high elevation streams. And it causes lots of issues, as you might imagine, I'll read you a little excerpt from the book. Ocean acidification is, of course, not the only threat to our reefs. In some parts of the world, reefs will probably not last long enough for acidification to finish them off. The roster of perils includes, but is not limited to, overfishing, which promotes the growth of algae that compete with corals, agriculture runoff, which encourages algae growth, deforestation, which leads to siltation and reduces water clarity, and dynamic fishing, whose destructive potential would would seem to be self-explanatory. So a lot of times I think people think they're one single thing, one single factor that caused a lot of these problems, and and I think that uh, the author does a really good job of talking about and covering some of the complexities of it all. In the Smokies, if we look at something happening locally, as I said, we have high stream acid levels that are 
are elevated, and it causes all kinds of problems that you might not think of. Uh, something as simple as snails not being able to absorb enough calcium to build their shells, which also affects birds, which uh, rely on the calcium from eating the snails to to uh, produce uh, thick enough eggshells. And then there are lots of plants that depend on calcium uptake and nutrient uptake that are affected by that simple acid in streams. She moves into, with I guess about the seventh chapter, she goes down to the Amazon and interviews a, a scientist who's studying, he has plots of trees, studying really temperature change in the Amazon. And what we know from our own work in the Smokies, uh, we mostly deal with invertebrates. But as the climate changes, whether it gets colder or warmer, on a mountain, thing, there's less space as you move up. So if things have to migrate, especially to keep the consistent temperature they may depend on, there's less room as you move up. So some things are going to get left out. Uh, and, and this study really is proving that. Uh, what they're looking at is the movement of trees. You know, most things have a certain range of temperature they can survive at. Some things have a wide range. And those are the things we're going to be left with eventually if, if things go in the direction that the predictions say. But this scientist is actually looking at what species move and how they move up the plots and if they move. What they determine from the study or what their prediction is is that if the warming were held to a minimum, the team estimated that between 22 and 31% of species would be committed to extinction by 2050. Uh, that's at a minimum. Obviously, there's a, there's a much worse look at that, which is up to 38 to 52%. But what the scientists from, and he's from UC Berkeley, said was the, the best way for us commoners to see that is if you walked outside and you looked around and you just imagined your environment with a quarter of what's out there or, or half of what's out there. So of the species that live around us, we just edit out 50%. And I don't think anybody wants to see that. An interesting side note to that whole moving up the mountain, we have some scientists who've done studies on arthropod diversity in the Smokies, and one of the predictions in starting the project was that as you move up the mountain, as the temperature really cools in our current situation, there would be less, less species. So diversity really would decline. But what they actually found in doing the research and this is why we depend on science and not just what we think in our mind, is it, it increases, and it increases much, much further than they suspected. So all the way up to almost 2,000 feet in elevation, the diversity of, of species increases. It only starts to decline when you get at a high elevation of about 2,000 feet, and then there's a, there's a small drop-off of that. So, again, if temperatures change, as they suspect, those species that are at those levels where they cannot adapt to too much change. There will not be enough space for all of them to move up. Uh, when we go into the chapter about habitat fragmentation and the studies going on in South America, uh, it deals a lot with uh, invertebrates and what, how little we know about invertebrates. Invertebrates make up more of the species on Earth than anything else. There are more 
insects than there are anything else. And we know the least about that group. And some folks who've said that to me many times, why is that important? Why would we want to know more about bugs? Uh, But it's like any resource. I mean, one simple thing is it's a resource, and we don't know what that resource might bring to us. If you're looking at it only from a human perspective, there might be cures for diseases within those things. There could be all sorts of resources that we don't know about. And they also provide things like pollination, for example. Uh, Insects do lots of things that we don't recognize or acknowledge that are important to our own survival. For example, in the Smokies right now, we know that of two bumblebee species that have disappeared just in the last five years. And there's a, they suspect that the same thing that is happening to our domesticated bees are happening to our wild bees and all of that in that whole group. And, you know, if, uh, if the pollinators disappear, then we are in trouble as far as food goes as a species. As you've heard and as is so true, we are dependent on all these things, whether we like to believe so or not. One of the worst things I personally think is, as not only a, a scientist but a, as, a, as an educator is we somehow as a species have separated ourselves from our habitat. We no longer consider ourselves a part of nature. We sort of look, look at nature from afar and make judgments about it. But really we, we are a part of it and we depend on it. Uh, even if it's, it's nothing more than just clean air and clean water and a clean place to live, and certainly food that we have to have from the environment. Um, the interesting thing about the uh, habitat study was how much just a small fragmentation will decrease the biodiversity in, in an area. Uh, so it's a, it was as simple in this study as cutting those, those fragments of forest into small squares. And uh, Tom Lovejoy, who's actually uh, spoken at our conference in Gatlinburg before, um, he started this study about 30 years ago. And it's a really amazing study about how just a separation in a fragmented habitat will cause the biodiversity to decrease. It doesn't make sense to us because we jump in our car and go anywhere, but there are things that won't move around in a space when it's cut up, if there's a road built. If, and, and we have that same thing going on in the Smokies. The Smokies is really becoming an island in a world of, of development all around it. And we certainly, uh, I certainly believe there, there are things that have disappeared there that are, have disappeared because it's fragmented and there's no path to travel and there's, no, there's not enough space for certain species to exist. And that happens all, all over the place. You don't have to really go very far. Just look in Knox County at how it's fragmented and, and realize how many things that have been affected by that. Back to invasive species, an interesting thing that she talks about, and the title of it is The New Pangea is how our ability to move around has started sort of diluting biodiversity. So as we move around and take things with us that don't belong to new places, uh, it causes all these issues that we see. The hemlock woolly adelgid here is obviously an introduced species. There are lots, lots of examples of that, but even one of the stark things about that chapter is she, she goes to visit where bats are being counted. You know, we have this big issue now with the white-nose syndrome, and 
what she found was a bunch of dead bats, basically, which is what we've seen all over the southeast and, and really all over the range of almost all of our native bats. There are just a couple that are that don't seem to be susceptible. Any of the cave-dwelling bats are being affected by this, and those populations have just dropped to really almost zero. Uh, an interesting part of that, and this goes to something else I want to talk about, is a lot of the folks who are involved... We just had um, uh, Myrtle and Tuttle, who's really the world's foremost authority on bats, here at our conference, at, at Discover Life in America's conference, and he talked about this problem with bats, and he believes that bats will be able to, most of them will be able to overcome this, that there'll be some that are not susceptible in the populations, and they'll be able to recover. And I'm glad he thinks that. One of the problems she talks about is that sometimes populations get so low and their uh, reproductive rate is so low that it's almost impossible for them to recover without help. And so they're certainly, with bats, will need our help in doing that. One of the other problems with bats is people dislike bats in general. I mean, I think we've done a really good job of trying to intercede in that, but overall there's a dislike for bats, and that causes them all sorts of trouble besides the trouble with white-nose syndrome. But let's hope that it's true that they will be able to overcome this and and recover, and that some of them will be resistant and survive. But back to the idea of the new Pangea, and she gave an analogy which I like. Her analogy was using chemicals. So if you have, say, 10 chemicals, each in a separate container, but the containers are connected by a small tube, and each of these are unique, if you will, beautiful chemicals that are important, but once you... Um, open up these tubes slowly over a period of time, you will finally end up with one single chemical when they're all mixed together. And that's really basically what's happening with our diversity. As we move things around, there are going to be things that outcompete other things. And, you know, I get asked this a lot about invasive species. Well, the funny thing is, you know, we have a lot of these Asian species that seem to really survive well here and outcompete our native species, but the same thing's happening in Europe and other places. Some of our species are doing the same thing over there. So it, it goes back to that whole idea. And, you know, some folks might ask, why is that important? But just for the mere sake of having all these different beautiful things, to me that's, that's a reason to try to do something about it. Of all the, the great bear species that we have, all the great different kinds of bears that we have, could we just pick one? that we just wanted to have and, and we could let the rest go. That's sort of what we're, we're talking about. I don't think we should do that. Finally, in a funny way, and none of this book was really funny, but I got a kick out of what she called the madness gene. Somewhere in our DNA must lie the key mutation or probably mutations that set us apart. The mutations that make us the sort of creature that would wipe out its nearest relative, then dig up the bones and reassemble its genome. Which is, you know, it's funny, but it's true. And that is a little bit of madness, for sure. We've already wiped out some of our nearest relatives, and we're in the process of, of wiping out the rest. With the exception of humans, all the apes, all the great apes today are facing oblivion. The number of chimpanzees in the wild has dropped to perhaps half of what it was 50 years ago. The number of mountain gorillas has followed in a similar trajectory. 
Lowland gorillas have declined even faster. It's estimated the population has shrunk by 60% in the last two decades. So again, sad, but we can do something about it, and we must. I am probably about at the end of covering the book. I'll tell you a little bit about our non... I run a nonprofit in the Smokies called Discover Life in America, and we are studying biodiversity, and we're documenting biodiversity in the park. And we found 934 new species to science and over 7,000 new records for the park. So it goes to the point of finding what we don't know about and figuring out how it fits into our world. And that's what we do. Uh, A lot of folks think technology can fix all of our problems. And I certainly think that there there is something to that. I don't think technology can fix all of our problems, but one of her chapters goes into this freezing of DNA of things that are going extinct in hopes that we can bring it back someday, which is, I think, a great idea. It's much better than having a drawer full of ivory-billed woodpeckers, but we'd have to have a place for them to live, and a lot of what the problem is is we've destroyed the place where they live, where they're adapted to. So we'll just finish with this great quote at the end of the book from Paul Ehrlich. In pushing other species to extinction, humanity is busy sawing off the limb on which it perches. Uh, again, what we have to think about is what can we do about that? I personally didn't think she offered very many solutions. It was more of a raising awareness of what is happening around us. I do think, from my own perspective, people have to be more adamant about our conservation efforts. We have to speak out more about it. I think In many ways, it seems the conservation movement has become a little passive. It seems like all the aggressive people are on the other side, if you will. I think part of that is the whole tree hugger thing, and there there certainly are conservation organizations that are overly aggressive with some of their tactics, probably, that get a bad rap. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's any question that the facts are in front of us, what most of the problems are and we are causing many of them and we are the we are what can do something about it so and and i think that's that's the answer to the question if you will at least from from my point of view that's why i do what i do i don't not everybody can be in conservation but certainly everybody can support it there's a real need for support for a lot of the efforts that are going on and um, everybody can get involved in some way and even if it's as simple as you know there are things Uh, we can do in our own backyards to help species. Uh, You can plant native plants rather than some exotic plants. You can encourage wildlife. We can stop mowing big, vast lawns and and create space for our local animals to live. Uh, We can change our practices of building houses where you uh, cut down all the trees and rip off all the topsoil, and you don't have to do all that. There's proof of that. So there's lots of small answers that, if all come together, can be a bigger answer to some of the problems. I'm going to stop there before people start running and hiding um, and, and take questions. Todd, has any of the work that you've done so far resulted in any, any protective measures for things that are still here but in diminishing quantity? That's a great question, and, and yes, we have really a contract with the National Park Service, and we're limited to working in the park right now. Our goal is, with more resources, and once we move a little further along with this 
specific project in the Smokies is to help encourage and coordinate biodiversity research worldwide. But in the Smokies, certainly finding these new species and creating maps to where they exist and what their value is in, a, in the ecosystem helps the park better manage the park. I mean, it could be as simple as we're not going to put a new trail there because we know there's a very rare species there. Most obviously of the new species we're discovering are not, there's not huge populations of them. You know, the Smokies is an area where there are lots of endemic species that are found nowhere else in the world. And and knowing about them, you can better protect them. So yes, in influencing management decisions in the park, our work has guided that a lot. And we would hope to do that other places eventually. I noticed that you were talking about the amphibians and that there are two particular viruses that were contributing to extinction, but I'm wondering what the research shows about how other factors play into that because, I mean, viruses have been mutating for all, all of time or at least all of um, living time. <laughs> and, and it appears that, like with people, if you're immunocompromised, then it's going to uh, take a, a much greater toll. Well, that is true. And I, I do think it is one of the things I think she does a good job of talking about. It's a complexity of things. So it's not just the fact that amphibians are being attacked by these viruses. It is, is that they're already stressed by other factors. This happens a lot with the disappearance or the decline in species, whether it's a change in temperatures, whether it's chemicals in the environment. And, and with, with amphibians, there's a big idea that chemicals in the environment, because they're they're a water-based reproductive organism, and chemicals tend to gather in water. There is a complex that happens, and it's happening in the Smokies with, with the high elevation things. There's fact, other factors besides just one single thing like the attack of a virus that are causing these declines, and I'd say that's a book in itself to talk about how, how complex that is. Doris probably knows more about it than anybody around, so I'll let her maybe talk about that. I just want to add to that that one of those viruses that is more recent is from Asia, and it mm-hmm. came with a pet trade. Yeah, m- most of what's attacking are not something that's mutated. It's something that's been, it's, it goes back to the whole sort of diluting of biodiversity. It's bringing things over that don't belong, and, and the things here don't have time to evolve to, you know, the the whole bat and I'm sure maybe even some of the amphibian things, those that evolve with that virus are not susceptible to the, the problems that we have here with, with those, the bats or the, or the amphibians. There was a discussion on All Things Considered about a forest fire which was so hot that it essentially turned the soil into a glass-like substance. They had not had a fire for 125 years. And this was such a hot fire that it degraded the soil to the extent that it was so solidified on top that they've had, it's in California, they've had five inches of rain out there recently, but the rain has only gone into a half, half inch of the topsoil. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not the same thing, but I got the impression in listening to that, some of our efforts to prevent forest fires may be counterproductive because it's, uh, a lot of times it's, it's okay to let it burn. The reason we prevent them is because somebody's built a house there. Right. So let the house burn too. <laughs> but, yeah. I, you know, that, that's 
that needs to be factored into to how we develop things if you want to save what's there. Right. Yeah, there are all kinds of practices like that that certainly cause environmental issues and that that is an example of one is the suppression of fires really over over the last however long we've been developing places and building buildings and not allowing that to happen i mean there's there are changes especially on managed land now where there control burns but you know that that's that is that's just one example of the many that are out there of things that we've done in trying to do a good thing that really for other creatures is not a good thing Yes, sir. I understand that one of the reasons there is so much diversity in the Smokies is because species were able to move up and down the mountainsides, um, you know, when the climate changed, uh, say, after the last ice age. Really, it's not moving up and down the mountains more than it is moving down the Appalachian chain. The, The ice sheet, if you will, did not come all the way down, so many of the things were able to move down ahead of it and survive uh, and and so it, it is it is not necessarily moving up and down the mountain as it is moving down the chain it, all, it also is there are lots of niches and microclimates and all kinds of things that are involved in having elevations like that so things can evolve in a very specific place with a you know a very specific niche um, and you know as those change then the question is will those those unique species be able to survive a change? Will they be able to adapt enough to, to survive? You mentioned that uh, we've eaten up several species and destroyed a lot of habitat. You didn't say specifically how we destroyed it or why we chose to destroy it, but I'm wondering if using these things up is entirely related to human population increases or are humans just spreading out into new areas or they're just so many they can't help but overrun the habitats? Um, I think it's probably all those things, but some of these species that I talked about, you know, that's they're, they've been extinct for 100 years or more. So it wasn't... Probably it was ignorance more than anything else in that I think sometimes we think there's an unlimited supply of nature. And in the case of probably these two birds that I mentioned, uh, there were so many. I think that, that, and I think it's happening with our oceans now. I think people see it, many people see it as an unlimited supply of fish or food. And we, you know, we just continue to unsustainably collect and I think with those, especially those particular bird species, I think, you know, they were easy. They were easy to kill. They were easy to collect. And we just continued to do it until they were all gone. And then, you know, maybe they thought later, well, maybe we shouldn't have, you know, taken all of those. But it was too late at that point. You, you know, uh, extinction is a really interesting phenomenon because we don't know what the tipping point is. You know, like there have been some great efforts and trying to end on a, on a happy note here, like the California condor, where they were down to hardly any, and they were able to save them. And, you know, there's a lot of factors that are related to how species can recover from problems, whether it's viruses or others. You know, like, for instance, bats. The big problem with bats is if we do find that some are not susceptible to this virus, their problem about rebuilding their populations is they usually only have one baby per year. You know, they're not 
highly productive. So um, it, it takes a long time for something like that to recover to the level that would be a sustainable level for them. Um, Could you mention some of the new species that you have discovered in the Smokies? Sure. Um, actually, I'm glad you said that because I brought this chart. This is uh, something we call our taxa tally. This is a tally of what we knew about the park before we started this biodiversity project 15 years ago or 16 years ago. And then uh, one of those columns is new species to science, which means that they're newly documented, never found nowhere else in the world. And then one column is about new records for the park. And, and as I've already mentioned, most of our work, much of our work is on invertebrates. And that, that's because that group is understudied. A lot of the, most of the mammals have been well studied. Uh, the birds, well studied. Reptiles, amphibians, very well studied. There's still a lot of work going on on those groups, but it's not really dis- the discovery of new species. It, this is just sort of a, an idea, capturing of, of some of our work. And the, there are a lot of obscure things we look at nobody's ever heard of, groups even I had never heard of before I started this job. But I try to pull out some things that I thought people would be able to understand whether you like the groups or not. Um, but springtails, and, and some of you may or may not know about springtails, they're a small soil creature. Uh, we have a, a University of Tennessee professor, Ernie Bernard, who's done most of that work. Uh, we have over 60 new species to science of, of that particular. It's a very important critter. Nobody knows about springtails, or very few do, but they, they help build soil, basically. In, in most cases, they help turn leaves into soil, and it's an important part of the ecosystem. So we have 60 new species of those. We have over 220 different kinds in the Smokies, and there's lot, lots more work to do on that group. Uh, butterflies and malls, everybody knows about butterflies and malls. Most people love them, and in general, they're uh, a beautiful group. But we have 36, I think 36 new to science, and a little over 1,900 different kinds of butterflies and malls in the Smokies, and still still some to be found. That group has been fairly well studied, but there are always still some work to do, because with small critters like this, they can hide anywhere. Then we have beetles, and beetles represent the most of any of the invertebrate groups. There are more beetles than anything else in the world. Uh, we have 56 new to science and over 2,500 uh, different kinds of beetles in the park. Mites, another group. There's 31 new species. Uh, that's not necessarily one that people like, uh, but they are a very in, a unique group and, and uh, really a beautiful group if you look at them up close. Uh, s- spiders, 41 new species to science. And we have, uh, I think that's more than, more than 500 different kinds of spiders and some very unique spiders, as a matter of fact. And then flies. Flies are an important group because they're one of the pollinators of a lot of different things that people don't recognize them as a pollinator. As a matter of fact, most of our, if you have a plant in your yard that has a bad smell, of, as the flower has a bad smell, uh, it's normally pollinated by a fly of some kind. Like pawpaws are one that most people know about. Those are fly. There's a, are a native plant that are pollinated by flies. But we have uh, this is a group that we we have a lot more work to do on. But we have already found thirty, almost thirty new species to science, and there's over nine hundred different kinds of flies in the park. So um, that's just a snippet. This will tell you more about about some of the other things. But 
You've given me uh, even more reason to, to love the Smokies and to appreciate your work. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.